We want to talk a little bit about, and uh, well, sort of indirectly too, astronaut Steve Robinson, a graduate of UC Davis's School of Engineering. Steve Robinson uh, garnered worldwide headlines in August when he became the first astronaut to make repairs on the underbelly of the Space Shuttle Discovery. That was, in fact, the only shuttle mission since the Columbia disaster in 2003. It was an effort to learn how we can fix a shuttle if something strikes it, there is some damage, what to do, how to integrate uh, the shuttle mission with the uh, space station more effectively. And he gave an excellent talk at the Mondavi Center about that. We were privileged here to represent uh, the media, KDVS, uh, during the press conference which took place before Steve Robinson's talk to the general audience. We have a recording of that uh, press conference. Unfortunately, the questions did not, uh, did not uh, uh, record very well, so I'm going to have to repeat what those were and then play back for you some of his answers. My favorite question, I think, by far, was uh, not one I asked, but it was asked by one of our reporters here from the California Aggie, I believe, who asked uh, Steve Robinson what he thought about people who say that we never went to the moon. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't believe they exist. <laughs> but uh, as we've joked about on this program, and I think they've also uh, joked about on uh, This Week in Science on Tuesday mornings here on KDVS, uh, uh, Steve Robinson is actually an alumnus of this very radio station. My understanding was he was program director back here in circa 1977, and I asked him about that. I was, yeah. Uh, Dave Webb preceded me, and he's out there at lunch, too. And I had always been fascinated with radio growing up. Not TV, but radio. So when I got to Davis and found out there was a radio station, it was really exciting. So I got involved pretty early on and eventually became program director and ran, uh, had all kinds of shows. Had a bluegrass show on Thursday afternoons, had an acoustic jazz show late Sunday nights, had a live local music show every Monday evening right around dinner time. My first job with a degree in aeronautical and mechanical engineering when I left Davis was as a morning DJ. So radio was a, was a big part of my life. And in fact, we got to do the first podcast, podcast from Space on right. Mission. So That's it's right. still there. Learned it all at KDBS. Uh, I asked Steve a bit about uh, the potential for a new space race now that, uh, that China is putting men in orbit. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I wish them the absolute best and a very safe program. I understand as well as anybody the desire to go into space, to explore, to pioneer. And uh, if another nation wants to do that, I understand that completely and I support them to do that. I also think that competition is a pretty good thing. Americans compete very well. And uh, I don't think that that's uh, it's a bad thing at all. The, the universe is large. One thing you learn as a space traveler, looking back at the Earth, is that first of all, we're humans. And there are certain common dreams and aspirations that I think humans the world around have. And so that's what drives us off our planet to explore. I asked Steve to comment about that memorable photograph, one which really changed how people think about ourselves here on the planet. That, uh, the one that the Apollo astronauts took back, looking back at planet Earth with the surface of the moon in the foreground. I can remember what it was like before we got that photograph and how dramatic it was to get that. And now kids growing up from that photograph and the knowledge that we actually went to the moon, they know that that's possible. What a gift. You know, that sets a high watermark for human achievement. And they know that no matter what else happens, that that's a possibility. 
And if that's possible, what's beyond that? Steve was asked uh, to comment on how the campus has changed since he was a student. Yeah, campus is totally different. <laughs> it's, it's huge. Uh, I, I've never been in this building here before. And uh, every time I come back to campus, I, I am reintroduced to a new corner that's new. Uh, but the feel of, of uh, UC Davis has been pretty constant. You know, there's sort of a, I don't know how you say it, sort of a relaxed energy. Um, there's, uh, there's an intellectual undercurrent here that you just don't find other places. Apparently, uh, someone from Fox at television arrived a little bit late and, and asked uh, Steve a question about the award that he was going to receive uh, prior to his talk from uh, Chancellor Larry Vanderhoff. This award would be, in my life, to me, most personally important award that I have been honored to get. Not so much for what the award is, but because of the people it's coming from. The people here at UC Davis have, have influenced my life through half of my adult life. And, and still are. And some of the people here have been people who've guided me to where I am and where I'm going. And so to receive an award from this place that I hold so dear in my heart, that really means a lot personally. We couldn't resist asking an astronaut about uh, a subject that's been near and dear to our hearts in this program, the possibility of manned exploration of Mars. Well, the next step is to go back to the moon and not just visit, but learn to live there. That's a very different thing from just hopping down and visiting for two days or three days. Living there for several months, that will be a very different kind of challenge that human beings have never undertaken. Now, Mars is a long ways away, and it'll take a long time to get there. How long it takes you to go somewhere depends on how fast you drive, right? Well, the problem with going to Mars is you would like to go as fast as possible, but you have to slow down when you get there. So as much fuel as it took you to accelerate the speed for the transit trip, you're gonna have to use that same amount of fuel to slow down to land. So you have to haul all that fuel to Mars. So it's a big engineering problem. And then there's physiological problems of being in space for as long as it would take. You know, I think we'll go to the moon and learn how to live there first, and then we can speak more intelligently about the challenge of going to Mars. There's been much talk in the news of late about uh, space tourism, its potential for the future, and a few, and of course a few millionaires who have already managed to pull off the feat of becoming the first space tourists. We asked uh, Steve Robinson to talk about um, tourism above the Earth. I think it will be expensive and dangerous, but it, you know, there are other forms of tur tourism that are also expensive and dangerous. It's hard to see how to get around that. You know, we've been doing it for 40 years roughly, and uh, it's less dangerous and more expensive. Those two things are related. Well, thanks a lot. After speaking with us, Steve Robinson uh, adjourned and went in to the Mondavi uh, Large Hall, where he was then presented with the UC Davis Medal by Chancellor Larry Vanderhoof. Steve Robinson joined a very select group of people who have actually received the UC Davis Medal. I believe it's only been given to six people, such as Margaret and Robert Mondavi and President Bill Clinton. You know, I should also refer you, too, for more information to Lynn La, the Aggie science writer, who had a very good, uh, very good article uh, uh, prior to the visit, and I presume after it as well. Steve Robinson expressed a great thanks to UC Davis, and, and particularly to his professor of mechanical and aeronautical engineering, uh, uh, Dr. Cornelius Case Van Damme. By way of review, Steve earned his undergraduate degree here at UC Davis in 1978, in mechanical and aeronautical engineering. He, uh, while he was a student, and he told a very interesting story about this, he was an intern 
starting in 1975 for NASA's Ames Research Center, which is located in Mountain View. Um, he apparently was passed over original, originally because uh, he, I believe, was a sophomore at that point, and they really wanted a junior or senior and told him, look, you just won't know enough for this to be useful um, for you. But apparently the person who was selected uh, couldn't go for some reason or another, and he was basically told at that point, um, all right, uh, we're going to get you an interview. And he was saying, like, I, I thought I was too young. And they more or less said to him, you know, will you just not ask questions at this point? <laughs> and he said, well, great. Uh, you know, I'll get myself a good suit and I'll be, you know, I'll go down there. That'll be great. I'll prepare for it. And they said, no, no, no. He's on the phone now. So apparently he passed his preliminary talk with someone down at uh, NASA Ames in Mountain View and uh, was an intern while he was a UC Davis student. In fact, he, he explained that his start uh, on his way to becoming a, a shuttle astronaut and, and all of that really began here on the Davis campus at Tercero Hall in, in room K-125, where he uh, first, I think, uh, made that phone call down to NASA. And we also want to note at this point that he spoke some very kind words about learning how to fly here at the University Airport. We, of course, had on Charles Lowe, the chief pilot from, uh, from University Airport on uh, last year, and probably should talk to the good folks out there again. We would remind you that UC Davis is the only UC campus which has an airport as part of it. And, of course, a lot of you students out there, if you've ever aspired to fly, you might want to consider how you might want to follow in Steve Robinson's footsteps and learn how to do so right here at you know, University Airport. Steve talked about how the uh, the loss of the Columbia, uh, you know, just basically just devastated everyone uh, in, in of course, obviously, in the astronaut program. For a year and a half, uh, you know, no one could even think about, um, you know, going into space. And, and by the way, their mission had originally been scheduled to go in March of 2003, just a month after the Columbia disaster. So it was an, an awfully long postponement before they were finally able to get up into space. And I should point out too, if Steve Robinson comes back to talk again, if you get a chance, go see him. It was, a, it was really an excellent talk. He showed pictures of all of his fellow astronauts. <laughs> the funniest part was Charlie, one of the, uh, one of the fellow uh, uh, crew members. He said as he started to show pictures, you know what? Every single picture of Charlie, he looks exactly like this. And indeed, every photo you saw of him subsequently, he had the same sort of uh, smirk, sort of uh, can't believe his good fortune kind of smirk on his face that, you know, I can't believe I'm up here in space. He uh, showed pictures of the famous uh, Vomit Comet. <laughs> That's the nickname they give it. Uh, it's actually a 1963 KC-135, which was the military's version of the Boeing 707. If you fly up in a big parabola, and actually on the outside of the plane, it shows the parabola that you fly. You go up, go over the top, and you got about 30 seconds of free fall where you then enter the zero-gravity environment. It can be rough on people's stomachs, and that's why it's called the Vomit Comet. Of course, as an aside, when they filmed Apollo 13... All those scenes in zero gravity were actually uh, filmed in zero gravity. Tom Hanks and his fellow uh, actors, uh, through the miracle of you know lavish funding from Hollywood, actually had a lot more time in zero gravity than some of our astronauts. 
You know, it's hard to believe they actually built sets, put them in one of these planes, and then flew it up. And then, you know, when they were in the parabola in zero gravity, that's when they, you know, that's when they shot the film. But, uh, you know, if you think about it, I don't, you probably don't remember this, but, you know, there are no shots, long extended shots in zero gravity because, you know, they only had 30 seconds. Conversely, Steve took a camera up uh, in, into the space station and at one point did a shot where they were going down. You see this long cylinder that's connected, you know, segment after segment. There's one shot where he basically goes down the cylinder that's just amazing. I mean, it was like something out of a space odyssey. I mean, you had this real, really effective, like, this long tube, which it really is. I mean, it really brought it home as he was floating through and someone was floating his direction. He just told the guy, hey, you go high, I'm going low. And they passed each other in the, in the cylinder. Of course, as you might imagine, if you're going to be an astronaut, they're going to have some unbelievable training facilities. Um, aircraft are included in that. There apparently is a very nice uh, commuter jet, which NASA got a hold of, which, of course, can fly brilliantly like a commuter jet should when it's in its normal configuration. But they have a way of turning it into a simulated shuttle, basically based lowering the landing gear, making sorts of adjustments, and then, then it starts flying like the shuttle, which he described as basically dropping like a brick. Of course, the space shuttle is truly a glider. It comes gliding in from space and just, you know, drops on down. I forget its actual descent rate, but apparently it's, it's, it's you know, you're pointing down. It's coming down pretty hot and heavy. And, you know, you've got one try to put it down, and that's why they like to land on lake beds sometimes. You want to have a lot of leeway. Being an astronaut's clearly not for the claustrophobic, not just for these little spacecraft you fly in, but the spacesuits they put on. He showed how they have swimming pools where, that have, you know, entire mock-ups of the space station inside, mock-ups of the shuttle underwater, and how they will go spend uh, 10, 11 hours at a crack in a simulated zero-G environment. He mentioned one moment where there was a suit failure. He was underwater, and uh, there was a rupture in the lower part of the suit. <clears throat> he started having bubbles coming up all around him. The lower part of the suit collapsed, and he started dropping to the bottom where he was quickly found himself 40 feet down in this very large pool. He said that divers were on him in 30 seconds and pulled him right back up to the top, and he was really glad that these guys were really trained and on the ready for just uh, such, a, such a happenstance. Now, of course, while the whole world was watching, although Steve said he, he didn't realize that the whole world was watching, he went up to do a repair. He and uh, one of the Japanese astronauts, Suichi Noguchi, who's apparently on loan from the Japanese Space Agency, they were, these were the two guys, the mission specialists trained to go outside on the EVA, the Extra Vehicular Activity. And uh, the pictures that he showed of being out in space and this giant tether this, this large robotic arm, which we've probably seen in pictures of the shuttle, was curved around and sort of perched out on the very tip of it was Steve Robinson with this improvised repair kit, which first of all involved looking at the, the tiles. And indeed, uh, you probably you may have noticed on the web a few days ago, they published a, sh a photo that, that Steve showed to the audience at Mondavi showing where a bit of foam had come off one of the rocket boosters, and you know, this is this is a matter of, of some concern. Of course, the Columbia was lost because a chunk of foam struck the wing. Some of the insulating tiles were lost, and of course, uh, the superstructure of the space shuttle is no match for the heat of reentry. But he showed how they were able to go up to the space station, do a roll. It could be inspected. Pictures were taken, and when he did the repair, 
There was some concern about the delicacy of the maneuver, but he found that he was able to remove this filler material, which is put between the tiles. The bottom of the space shuttle, of course, is individually created tiles made by artists. Every tile is unique and has a unique place on the structure of the spacecraft. And because the tiles have to expand and contract, there's filler material between them, which... Uh, which can be a problem if uh, there's if it's sticking out, and and then there was an issue of it sticking out. But he said he was able to make uh, make the repair very satisfactorily. They've gotten some preliminary indications that uh, they'll be able to work up a repair kit to replace tiles or put in some filler if in future missions there's damage to the shuttle. But his talk really showed what it was like to be perched there, uh, you know, waiting to be blasted off into space. They went through 13 postponements of their mission before they finally did make it above the atmosphere. He was explaining how they basically got five seat belts, four parachute lines, a one communication line, two cooling tubes, and, and, and three other attachments, which I forget what they were, which you've got to basically get off yourself in like 15 seconds in case you have to like, you know, get out of the... Uh, the craft and into an emergency um, evacuation mode. But I really, I really enjoyed his lecture. He showed uh, the delicate maneuvers they made to dock with the International Space Station, and it was so funny. He was said they were warning uh, Suichi, uh, who was uh, a novice to space, to watch out when they, do, when they do the acceleration. And of course, while they were not paying attention, they just sort of got jerked back and conked their heads on the side of the spacecraft. It's a delicate maneuver, but you can clearly see that when they fire that rocket to to join up with the space station, well, you know, things kind of go flying a little bit. Uh, what I thought was really the most fascinating is things you take for granted here on Earth. I mean, for example, reading a magazine. The page falls back down because of gravity. You're trying to read a magazine up in the space shuttle in a microgravity environment, and the pages are sticking out at you like a hedgehog. So they wind up using a lot of Velcro, including uh, basically in the sleeping bags. You have to sort of Velcro yourself inside, climb inside the bag, and hope that you don't float away. Apparently at one, at one moment, a bit of cargo came undone, and in, and in the air, uh, air currents that the waft about in, in the craft, this giant piece of cargo moved, and he woke up to find it, you know, inches from his nose, which he said made it hard for him to sleep afterwards. Now, of course, in Zero-G, it wasn't going to fall down on him and crush him, but it still retains, you know, all of its mass here on Earth. So if you lift it up your head against it, you know, and it weighs a ton, it's going to be just like banging your nose against something that, you know, weighs a ton here on Earth. I was slightly disconcerted by the fact that he kept, he kept referring to things as in weights and in and, and so many pounds. And, of course, in Zero-G, just as a little aside... It's not a matter of weight, it's a matter of mass. The mass of the object remains the same, but, but mass and weight are not interchangeable. A 100-pound sack of beans, if you take it to the moon with one-sixth the gravity of Earth, only weighs 17 pounds. A 100 kilograms of beans taken to the moon still is 100 kilograms of beans. I suppose that's splitting hairs, but, but, but anyway, he was talking to, to an audience used to pounds, and so that's what he used. Now, of course, they try and think of everything when they're simulating uh, what it's going to be like in space. They don't want you to have any surprises, but unfortunately, he noted there was one ring around one of the, uh, the locks, uh, sort of a tether around it, that 
they neglected to put on the one that they sent up into space, and he was used to grabbing it when he came out, so he described leaving the spacecraft, reaching down, and like did kind of a whoa <laughs> moment. Tell you, I think I can speak for most of the audience in saying we, we could have just watched the footage that he was that, that he was showing us, you know, all day long. Uh, these these scenes of being out uh, on the outside of the shuttle as you see the Earth slowly rotating underneath you. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it, it exceeds anything you'll see in a movie. It's sort of amazing to think that, you know, the, the 25,000 mile circumference of the Earth is lapped every 90 minutes by an object in low Earth orbit. I mean, you are, you are booking. Anyway, radio does have its limitations. I think in, in trying to describe to you uh, this, uh, this, this very visual presentation by Steve Robinson, I'm going to come up short uh, on, on numerous items. But, you know, if you get a chance to see him speak, by all means, take advantage of that. Um, he described at one point going through the upper portions of the Aurora Borealis. In this case, it was the Aurora Australis. And it's sort of hard to imagine that the, 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 the light of the aurora actually starts up in space where the shuttle is. But, you know, there are a few uh, air molecules up that high even. And, uh, and, and indeed, it does. They were surrounded by an eerie glow, he said. And I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm sure that's, uh, that's really something. And I guess I should clarify, well, there's a northern lights and a corresponding southern light. So one of them is where the, the uh, near the north magnetic pole. The other one is near the south magnetic pole, and, and they do correspond. Interestingly, they don't line up exactly. There's, they're, they're a bit off. There's a slight angle between them. Uh, we discovered this is also true in some of the other planets, because it appears that, uh, that, uh, that most of the other planets besides Earth in our solar system uh, do have magnetic fields, and they do have aurora phenomenon as well. Anyway, Steve Robinson, the first KDVS DJ in space, and, and hopefully not the last. Let's take a break. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. We'll talk a little bit about a science and the time we have left in segment three.